Welcome to the JSW Radio Hour podcast, produced by the University of Arizona Southwest Center in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences. I'm Jeff Bannister. The following audio essay, part of our JSW Radio Archive series, is the second of three excerpts taken from the book Entre Yoris y Guarejillos, Crónicas sobre el quehacer antropológico, written by Mexican anthropologist Dr. Teresa Valdivia Donce, a researcher in the National Autonomous University of Mexico, UNAM. We hope you enjoy it. Sierra de Nadie by Maria Teresa Valdivia Donce, San Bernardo and its neighbors. The scene is a mountain range in the Mexican northwest, but the reader must not think in terms of a rugged range of verdant peaks, but rather of an arid region of cowboys in Texas-style hats and pointy-toed, high-heeled boots, of scattered settlements where hundreds of cows, bulls, and goats roam without a care in the world. When I first saw it, I had the impression that I was in a typical Western film. As the train from Mexico City progressed toward the state of Sonora, the landscape slowly changed from brilliant green to coffee brown with various shades of gray. For a time we were immersed in a great sand dune. Then, once again, the sad barren ridges returned, now in the midst of the northwest's great coastal plains. These two were areas of semi-desert. It was June of 1978, and although in Sonora the campesinos were waiting for the 24th and the feast day of St. John the Baptist to bring on the summer rainy season, that year San Juan was just another name in a crowded calendar of saints. In those early moments, I had no idea how important precipitation could be for me. But when I got back to Mexico City, one of the strongest impacts I felt was the return to rain. I then realized I had spent two years without enjoying the marvelous and enigmatic sensation of a downpour, those truly heavy rains that in my hometown are viewed simply as a nuisance to motorists. A journey by train of more than 1,500 kilometers can be quite pleasant. But it is also frustrating to find that, upon arrival, the final leg is to be on an uncomfortable bus, followed by a transfer onto an even less comfortable bus. We were 20 people in total on that camion, resigned to our common fate, and quickly, in the span of about 15 minutes, our number grew to 30, then 40. Soon we were snuggled in shoulder to shoulder. There were enough of us to keep tightly together. But the dirt road leading to the towns closest to the Guadalajara region covered us all in a fine dust that changed the color of our skin. After a time, we all turned white. Almost to the town of Los Tanques, the bus slowed, barely waking us from the sleepy rhythm of the heat, the vibration of the motor, and the last 30 miles of sandy washboard roads. Suddenly, a voice boomed, announcing, I'm looking for the tropologa from the Ini who comes from Mexico City. Is there a tropologa here? The bus driver asked. And as absurd as this may sound, I had no idea that he was alluding to me. The word tropologa meant nothing to me. I didn't know what he was referring to. More importantly, I didn't want to know. I was too busy trying to get a little sleep after 34 hours on the road, resting my head on my knees. But if the word tropologa meant nothing to me, it meant even less to the rest of the other passengers. The driver asked the question again, this time more loudly, and finally I began to come to my senses and realize that he might be referring to me. Still, I didn't want to be hasty or to seem naive, so I waited for a third call to confirm my presence. Finally, the driver hit the brakes, turned off the motor, got up from his seat, and yelled the question again toward the back of the bus, this time looking me straight in the eyes. Who else could be the tropologa, he asked. 
A tall, dark-skinned man with a solid build got onto the bus to help me with my luggage. He greeted me with a big smile. I suppose he made me feel important, although he also made me change my plans because I'd hoped to walk the rest of the way into the town of San Bernardo. He was Sergio Osua, the official driver for the Centro Coordinador Indigenista. I would later call him Super Sergio because the man was an especially good driver. We traveled all over the rocky Sierra Guarijia together on roads so rough that Sergio sometimes had to clear brush with his machete to open up a path for our truck. At that time, his greatest source of pride was having worked for the Coca-Cola company, driving a truck that could take up to a thousand cases of soda pop and go places, quote, only Coca-Cola could go. Once past the introductions and the small talk, how was your trip? Are you too hot? Where are you from? I was able to ask Sergio how long it would be before we got to San Bernardo. I looked at my watch, totaled up the hours of travel since Mexico City, and patted myself on the back for being off by just an hour in my initial calculations. Then I gave myself another pat on the back for having deciphered the map and figured out the route with no university training at all in cartography. My enthusiasm didn't last long, however, because the extreme heat made retaining a thought for any amount of time quite difficult. Indeed, it was brutalizing. The beginning of a project can be very difficult if one has not dealt with some basic issues, and in my case, I don't believe I had. I arrived in Sonora with all of the maturity and professionalism that a recent anthropology graduate and roquera and hippie of 1960s Mexico could have, someone from the generation of young people who had lived through the student movement and authoritarian violence of 1968. Part contagion and part conviction, I had been influenced by the guerrilla movements and national liberation struggles of the time. Part of me was de Feña from the capital and the other part provincial. I had to begin a new project, but not just any project, and not in just any place. Here there were few creature comforts like those one gets in the big city. There were no attractions, no amusements. No cultural events, book fairs, discos, bars. Television and radio reception were poor. The closest bookstore was in Navajoa, an enormous warehouse of the type that, at least in Mexico City, we call a newsstand. So, months later, I found myself enjoying the thick weekly novellas in circulation around the town, and in my worst moments, I even shared a sense of rejection in those love stories. The novel Raratonga, for instance, captivated me for two months. San Bernardo had only one small, rarely visited plaza and one cantina, which in my case, for the first time, had to accept a female patron. The main attraction was a series of large dances that began in September and did not stop until the hottest time of the year, in June, and for which you had to debut a new dress every eight or so days. In the opinion of San Bernardins, a dance was good if it ended in gunfire. A workplace like this one can quickly modify the views of an inexperienced anthropologist from Mexico City. I had to begin a new life as the process of adaptation, according to anthropological theory, an intentional part of fieldwork, is simply what happens when one experiences big changes in everyday life. The difference, however, is that fieldwork involves the anthropologist's voluntary decision to subject him or herself to such change for, quote, scientific ends. By contrast, when this kind of change happens to others, it can come from some sort of misfortune from which only the most, quote, capable survive. I think, though, that in both cases, the strategies for adaptation can be the same. 
Indeed, what we call, quote, social science is little more than a combination of common sense and a coherently organized imagination. Such organization, in turn, has a logical substrate shaped by current trends and thought. I'm sure that this idea will prompt more than one reader to jump up from the chair in indignation, but I am not seeking to produce epistemic discomfort. Rather, I simply want to be open about certain ideas that I think I probably share with many readers, and in particular those who dislike self-censored half-truths. In this process of adaptation, sometimes one fails to realize how and at what moment she has taken on elements of cultural difference, of otherness. In my case, I probably interiorized first the strongest characteristics of regional mestizo culture, the manners of speech, the sense of humor, ways of greeting, conversation, and forms of entertainment. Then there were other things that were harder to integrate, like dancing, especially since I like it so much, types of food, the joy and love of the region's aridity, as well as staying on a horse for more than four hours at a time. The process is thus also one of learning. Indeed, I do not believe it is possible for us to adapt to new situations in any other way. For example, if you are used to a verdant countryside, it is almost impossible to distinguish between a wisache and a wamuchil tree, or between a nopal and a pitaya cactus. It is not simply accidental that Eskimos recognize more than a dozen types or states of snow and ice, which they distinguish by different names. With a good, quote, teacher, however, one can learn to identify a large variety of plant and animal resources contained within this semi-desert sierra. The anthropologist Howard Scott Gentry understood the marvel of this place starting in 1939, when he made the first research forays into the region. In a study titled The Warijio Indians of Sonora Chihuahua, an Ethnographic Survey, from 1963, he noted as many as 140 species of plants that the Warijios utilize for different ends. Thank you.